Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. I'd like to welcome back to the Backseat Drive Radio Show, Noel Stoko, press officer and librarian and out-and-out Jawit enthusiast from the Jawit Car Club. We finished off last Sunday with gearbox problems and the fact Jawit were busily filling up the local Bradford football ground with comped out cars, but I mean, things did improve to a degree. So, Noel, welcome back to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Yes, it's nice to see you again. <laughs> now, as I said, we'd stopped with Duff Gearboxes at a football stadium in Bradford full of comped-out cars. Yes. Do yeah. carry on. Right, I will, yes. But just going back slightly before we do that, uh, I ought to mention a bit more about the Javelin and Jupiter successes in, in competition. Yeah, it rather evens out the, yeah. the comped-out base. Yeah, we need to say something nice, don't we? So, but yeah... The, they entered a Jupiter, which was very brave of them actually, because uh, they entered a Jupiter in, in the Le Mans 24 hour race in 1950. Now, at that time, they'd only built about four or five cars. Uh, anyway, they entered the Jupiter in it, and it went really well. Once again, it was driven by Tommy Wise and Tom Wisdom. Uh, and now, the, just put it for, for those who aren't sure, the Jupiter is. It's an unusual style car. It has what you might call a saloon car front and a Jaguar XK120 back end on it. it, it it's, it's one of those cars that the description probably doesn't do it justice. No. When you see them, they are actually a very stylish car. They are. They're a smashing car. Um, I'm saying that to keep you happy because you've got one in your garage. Yeah, yes, that's <laughs> true. Well, yeah, they, they are, they're a lovely car. And um, i say at the time, they were very advanced. And they... Uh, have always been very popular with enthusiasts because uh, even in the early days they were, were recognised as being a, a really good driver's car. Um, so, the, as I said, they entered the 1950 uh, Le Mans, which they won, and um, it, it, the one and a half litre class, I should say, and it was a record uh, distance they covered. It was the first one after the uh, Second World War, I believe. Yeah. I don't think there was one in '49. I think it was. Anyway, they entered in 1950 and they won the class in 1950. But then they entered again in 1951. They put two ordinary Jupiters in, and then they also put in one called the Jupiter R1, which is basically the same um, chassis, but they had a very lightweight body on with motorcycle wings on, designed specifically for the Le Mans race, really. And um, anyway, the three cars had competed in a 24-hour race, and uh, uh, the the R1 Jupiter it broke down, it blew its head gasket because they, they tweaked it up so much. It was um, it was I say the, the head gasket blew a on it. A bit it. fragile. A bit fragile. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and but one of the ordinary Jupiters won the class again. So they won the class in 50 and 51, and then. Um, 1952 came along and they entered three of the lightweight Jupiters called the R1 again 
and um, two of them broke down during the during the race, and the third one uh, was in the pits for an awful long time because somehow they'd managed to get water into the petrol and they had to drain all the petrol off and refill it and by the time it set off again it had been in the pit for a considerable time and there was Porsche, a Porsche in the class which was literally laps and laps and laps in front of us I mean there was not a hope in hell of catching the Porsche because it was a faster car anyway Yeah. Uh, but this is when um, uh, Mark was making some comments about us winning by default in 52. <laughs> what a dreadful thing to say. But anyway, to, <laughs> to cut a long story... Put it this way, if you're going to win, never mind. Yeah, I, was, I was going to say, as, uh, he's quite right, but as far as the history books are concerned, we won the 1952 one as well. But it was won because Porsche made a mistake. Yes, they, they came into the pits, there was something not quite ri- right with the car, so they didn't turn the engine off when they filled it with fuel and sent it on its way again but of course the scrutineer spotted it and he was disqualified uh, because he hadn't turned the engine off in the pits which they had to do for so I'm told anyway so anyway the outcome was uh, by that time the Jarrett was back on the road again uh, but every other car in the one and a half litre class had broken down so all the Jarrett, <laughs> all the Jarrett had to do was to limp home basically which is what it did <laughs> And so, but I'll say the, the history books say we won three years in a row, which we did. Yeah. So, but uh, with like the order of index, it was the lesser class because you, 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 they didn't win outright, but it was like order of index. Yes, that's the engine right. sizes. Yeah. And yes, everything it, else. on the engine sizes. But uh, another thing we don't really want to talk too much about is the fact that there was a Porsche in the one point one liter class as well. Yeah, which didn't break down, but he won the one and a half one point one liter class. Uh, with a much longer distance than yeah. we did in the one and a half litre class <laughs> in the Jow- in the Jowett. Uh, but um, anyway, Jowett... Semantics! But th- th- they realised then, the Jowett board, that they'd had the day, basically. They'd had three years of glory, and yeah. th- so they they stopped, they stopped racing then. But it was, the Jowett was still very popular, at, well, and the Jupiter, um, with um, enthusiasts and... You know, local racing drivers and the yeah. like. You know, and so you know, they they carried on well into the fifties doing competition work, and they were, they were very successful. Particularly in the Monte Carlo Rally, they were very popular. Uh, particularly the fifty fifty one. Because that era and the Monte yeah. Carlo Rally, that was if you could do well in the Monte during that era. Yeah, it was serious sales promotion. Oh, absolutely! It? And ordinary people could enter in those days. I mean. Uh, one of the people who was entered in the uh, uh, the Alpine Rally, uh, a, a, ch- a gentleman with a wonderful name of um, uh, Smallhorn, mm. uh, I, can't forget, I forget his Christian name, but he, he and his friend uh, entered in the Alpine Rally, uh, which they did very well in, but it was just his family, it was just his normal car, he used it for everyday use. Yeah. But in those days, before... Uh, big money came into motorsport anybody could enter these sort of races and stand a reasonable chance of doing well in them but um, by the time you get to walk towards the mid 50s that, that, that was no longer the case really well, the but, only thing uh, you had to do was fit a set of spotlights really absolutely that, that yes, was roughly yeah. about it yeah that's right yeah and have some sm- uh, snow tires on have the back some snow yeah. tires on the back <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that coming back to Jarrett's problems um 
if 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 um, if history had been kinder to them, they would have done very well after the war. Because as I said, the the javelin and the Jupiter were potentially world beaters, but um, they didn't have the investment put into them that they should have had, really. Uh, and I'd mentioned earlier on that the Bradford van was produced as well from 1946, which was a stopgap model, uh, which was a, a rehash of the 1938 twin-cylinder van. Were, were the vans based on anything? Because a lot, a lot of manufacturers, I mean, it still happens today, they'll take a small car and van it, for want of a better yeah, description. Totally, totally, yes. I mean, the, uh, the Jowitz realised there was a fair bit of money to be made out of commercial vehicles and because um, back back in those days unlike today nearly every every local butcher every absolutely local florist every candlestick maker yeah, yeah all the rest of them yeah they yeah. all had the little vans they when did. you sign right down them, that's right yeah now the the, the jowett brothers back in the 20s realized there was a big market for light commercial vehicles for exactly what you'd said you know the local butcher uh um, carpet man, uh, carpet person, anybody with with a small business needed a small vehicle which was cheap to run. Yeah, and I say that they they advertised the fact it was a penny a mile to run mm. these cars. And a lot of them actually had only one seat; they had a driver's seat. Yeah, to pay extra for for a passenger seat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but the the actual van was based on the 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 long. Um, long four chassis or the or the short two chassis it was the chassis was the same yeah but they put a, a van body on which was the, i mean the front end was still the same but instead of having a a, a passenger space at the back it was it was made into a van or a pickup uh, which which they referred to as a lorry um but it's, it is a pickup as far as you're concerned nowadays yeah um but as i say they were very successful in fact um Back in 1930, at the start of the Depression, um, Jowitz were selling more commercial vehicles than there were cars, um, because people still needed uh, commercial vehicles for, for business use. Yeah. So, yeah, Jowitz have always had commercial vehicles. Now, the Bradford van, uh, as I say, was a stopgap model, which was exactly the same, pretty much, as the pre-war one, except they put a different grille on. Uh, and called it a Bradford van because it'd been built in Bradford. Yeah. Um, now, that was only supposed to last for a few year, uh, two or three years because they were bringing out a new range of Bradford vehicles called a CD range. Um, now, the idea was they were going to have a, a range of uh, inexpensive vehicles made, uh, keeping the thrifty feel in mind, and um, the. The front end of the car, the front end of the vehicle will be the same for the car, the van, the the state car, and the pickup. They were all going to use the same front end, but a different back end yeah. to them all. But th this was a more modern design, uh, which was much more advanced than what they were building pre-war. Um, now, they got the design worked out and then they were having the bodies made at a firm called Briggs, which were based in Doncaster. Uh, and well, Briggs also produced the, the existing Bradford van and the Javelin, the Javelin Saloon. So they liaised with uh, Briggs to bring out the new CD range, but what with one thing and another, it got delayed and delayed and delayed 
and a CD range never went into production. They only made one car, one pickup, and about 13 or 14 of the vans stroke estate cars. Yeah. Uh, so they never went into production. And my view is if they had, they would have been very successful because they had a more modern look, a bit like a standard Vanguard type of front end, uh, and much more advanced than the pre-war model. Uh, but that never happened, and they continued making the Bradford van uh, from 1946 right up until the closure of the factory in 1953. Now, the Bradford van, I, I have one and I, and I love it. It's pre-war in every respect, but it's great fun to drive, easy to work on, because I'm not a mechanic, so I can keep a Bradford van on the road pretty much myself. <laughs> but, the, but the Javelin and Jupiter, I rely on club friends to help me out because they're too complicated for me. Yeah. But anyway, the outcome was the CD range never went into production, so um, they relied still on the, the Bradford van and then the, the Javelin and the Jupiter. Now, the Jupiter was an expensive car to build, and they wanted to make that an easier car to design, to, to manufacture as well. Because the interesting thing is, your Jupiter has no boot lid. But, it doesn't, yeah. But later on, they discovered fault light boots, so they built it with a boot lid. <laughs> That's right. Well, the early, well, most of the Jupiters, that they made, made 899 of them, and over 800 are the, what they call the SA, which doesn't have an opening boot. So There's just a parcel shelf behind the front seat. So you've got to tip the seat forward and put the, a very small suitcase in the back. But you normally need to take tools as well, so there's very little room in them. Uh, but the later model, the SC, uh, they made 90 of them with an opening boot, which is far better really, mm. because you can put stuff in and out much easier. Uh, but I'd say they're quite a rare vehicle now because there was only 90 of them made. Yeah. Um, but once again, they realised that Jupiter was expensive to make because uh, every all the panels were made by hand uh, and assembled around individual cars. So nowadays, if you're restoring a car and you get a rear wing from somewhere else, it won't match your car perfectly <laughs> because... Uh, they're, they're all different yeah. uh, it's very noticeable when you see a line of them you can see differences on all of them uh, but um, they, brought, they were going to bring out a new Jupiter called the R4 Jupiter which had a, a more straightforward uh, box section chassis which was what they were going to use on the CD range but once again it never got into production but the R4 they made three of them as they made three prototypes and it was it was a, a proper 100 mile an hour car. It's a super little thing. Um, some people think it's a ob obscure design because you only still exist. The, the, they made three of them, and all of them crashed heavily. But amazingly, two had been restored. So we've only lost one out of the three. So yeah. there's, there's two still in existence. Uh, but once again, um, what had happened was Briggs had sold their factory out to International Harvester, the tractor people, uh, because, no, that's not quite right, I'll correct myself, Briggs were sold out to Fords. Uh, Ford wanted to have a, a body making plant in this country of their own, so they bought out Briggs, and then it became very difficult for Jowitz to buy bodies themselves because they couldn't afford to buy them in the numbers that uh, Ford then wanted them to buy. Yeah. So the outcome was, um, 
it was very difficult to uh, get new models uh, up and running. So with the R4 Jupiter, they decided to try and experiment with fiberglass. Yeah. And they were going to make them not requiring uh, outside body manufacturers. They were going to build them in-house. So the only thing they technically yeah. need would be the moulds. Yes, yeah. And they experimented with them. And I say, the first car was steel, but then they used the panels off the steel one to fabricate the... To make the moulds for the rest for of For the rest. <laughs> now, the idea was, this was going to be Jarrett's saviour because it was a 100 mile an hour sports car, it could beat the, beat the socks off uh, uh, TR2s and, yeah. and similar cars at the time. And, um, but sadly, once again, it never went into production because by that time, the, country, the, the, the company was in big problems. Mm. That, uh, it, it was, so it was sold, uh, the, country, the company was sold and uh, it's always said that they went bankrupt, but they didn't. Uh, all the asset, all the uh, uh, liabilities were paid off in full, and what Jowitz then did was they set up a new company called the Jowitz en Engineering Company, which was which was based in Batley, uh, which would uh, manufacture parts and re uh, re uh, service cars for ten years. Yeah. So they, they went out of business. The last few Jupiters were made in 1954. Uh, and then um, after that, the, the manufacture was closed down completely. Uh, a lot of the workforce went to work for uh, um, International Harvester, who, who took over that site. Yeah. Uh, and then um, um, the, the, the new site, what was the Briggs site in Doncaster, started then making Ford bodies. Uh, and quite a few of the staff went to work there as well. Um, so all of all the Jowett workers did mainly find work elsewhere, which was yeah. which was good. Um, so, yeah, it was a difficult time for them, but they did sell out without making a loss, which a lot of people always say, oh, they went bankrupt, but they didn't. They, they, they paid all the debts. Because the interesting thing is, <clears throat> I mean, the Javelin, incredibly streamlined car, as you said, very successful as a competition car. Absolutely, but it wasn't designed as that at all. Uh, Gerald Palmer, uh, he designed it f for con uh, colonial use. That's why it's high off the ground, it's got big wheels and, and the chassis is high off the ground to, to be able to drive on unmade roads around yeah. the world. Um, and the Javelin sold extremely well uh, in um, in the Commonwealth. Of, of it's like you said, an early 50s car, it doesn't look like. No. It looks like a late 50s, potentially early 60s car. Yes, it does. And it looks a bit like a smaller version of uh, American... Like a Chrysler Airflow, something yeah, that like that. Yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. And uh, they had hoped to sell them in America, but that was a bit of a disaster as well, unfortunately. They only sold 32 about 33 I think it was to yeah. America but having said that the Jupiter sold extremely well because um, a lot of uh, um, airmen going back to America after the war and the like remembered remembered Jowitz and when the the, the, Javelin, the Jupiter came out uh, it was a nice little sports car it was very popular uh, I think they must have sold about half of the production to America Yeah. so that was a success story for Jowitz but not the Javelin but having said that, the Javelin did really well, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, India, all over, all over. They sold to 81 different countries, 
by, by the end of production. So, yeah. uh, as I say, had they ironed out a lot of the problems earlier on and had more finance, I think the javelin could have run for several years more yeah. than it actually did. Um, but the new models they were bringing out, once again, would have taken over from the javelin and the existing Jupiter. Uh, so, like I say, had, uh, had um, things gone their way better, I think Jowitz could well have survived quite a lot longer than they did. But it's the usual thing, of course, what's the, way, what's the best way forward? They went out in a blaze of glory, making their own cars and not being copied, not bash-engineered Austin Morris, Wolsey, Riley <laughs> and all the rest of them. They, they ended up um, going out of business with their own cars, not yeah. sort of a badge engineered thing of somebody else's. So, uh, well, the interesting thing is, it's like you said, you have three: you have a Bradford van, yes. a Javelin, and a Jupiter. Yes, the yes. Bradford van made them a profit. Yes, now, that that is the <laughs> ironic thing. That they brought out the Bradford van. Now, somebody has has said as well that the the Jowett people might have felt embarrassed with the Bradford van because on the badge on the front it says Bradford. In large print, to so it was built in Bradford, and in small print underneath, it says "By Jowett." Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, as it was, to a degree, more it, it slightly disassociates Jowett from it, doesn't yeah. it? it? Yes. Well, well, the other thing I think is amusing the the fact that they mo they made three models post-war. There was a Javelin Saloon, the Jupiter Sports Car, and the Bradford Van. Now, the Javelin and Jupiter were uh, upmarket modern cars and the Bradford van was pre-war in every respect and you know al almost a joke in some ways because it was out of date yeah but having said that it was extremely popular because after the war uh, people didn't have a lot of money and you know, people buying uh, cars for the businesses a Bradford van was ideal because you could work on it you could use it during the week and do some maintenance over the weekend because people did in those days. Uh, but the outcome was, as you said, Mark, uh, they made 40,000 Bradfords, which is more than any other model they made. And the Bradford van was the only model post-war that made money for, for, for Chowis. In fact, the Javelin Saloon and Jupiter were financed by the profit from the Bradford van, <laughs> which I find <laughs> amazing, really. I, I mean, they one of the famous posters they have was called from the same stable and it's got a uh, like a, a stable block with some horses heads poking out and it's got a javelin a car a, a jupiter sports car and a bradford van all in a row saying from the same stable yeah. but i mean they look so so different uh, there's two very modern looking vehicles and one looking prehistoric <laughs> uh, but as i say i, I I love the Bradford vanies, they're, they're a lovely car to work on and um, if you want to have pre-war driving but want something a bit modern, uh, a bit more modern, a Bradford van is, fits the bill perfectly because it is a pre-war design in every respect and the actual engine in the Bradford van is basically the same engine as it was in the first 1906 car and um, in the uh, in this, in the Guinness Book of Records for many, many years, uh, we were in there as having the longest running engine production of any vehicle for 47 years. Now, uh, that ran from 1906 to 1953. And uh, 
And then, of course, we were overtaken by 2CV, the, the Citroën 2CV. They picked us more recently because their engine lasted longer than ours did. Well, I mean, as the, as the flat engines, they're horizontally opposed. Besides Citroën, you have Panar, the yes, French yeah, manufacturer. Yes, yeah. You have Porsche. Yes. And, of course, these days, you have Subaru. Yes, well... And Jarrett predated them all. Yes, and rumour has it Subaru... I had a good look at a jar when they went when they were designing their engine as well, but uh, I, I can't prove that one. No, the it, other, it, it, it's it's rumoured maybe that if you drive around in an Impreza, you could be driving. <laughs> you, you could be driving a modern Joey. A, a modern Joey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now the one thing is, it's like we said, where the factory was is now a Morrison's. Yes, yes. But if you go in there, there's like a, a mural on the wall there that is, shows yeah. yes, yes. They, have, they have paid homage to the fact that this is yes. the Jowitz we made yeah. well when they opened that factory uh, the, the, the supermarket rather I think it was back in 87 or 8 somewhere around there uh, they uh, they were very good because they, we arranged to have a Jowitz meet at one of their other supermarkets in town and then we drove with a, a, a cavalcade through Bradford yeah. um, with the Lord Mayor and everybody else there up to the new Morrison supermarket because they wanted to extol the fact that they were on the factory site and um, uh, they looked after us very well you know we, we all parked up in a special parking area and we uh, we had a cream tea laid on and one thing and another so it was very nice but they, yes they do recognise the fact that Jowitz were built there which I'm pleased about um, yeah so and the other famous thing about Jowett, and you can find this little film on YouTube, the famous Jowett test run, or the route. Yes. Because when they were testing the new Bradford van, it was 120 miles round was this trip. It was, But yes. there were three shifts of drivers. There were, Because yes. when they set off, the drivers, every eight hours, it had a change of driver. It, the drivers got a rest, the Bradford van never got a no, single rest. No, it didn't, rest. that's very true. Now, like I say, the CD... Had it got into production, I think it would have been a, a successful vehicle. Yeah. Uh, but you're quite right. Uh, they used to leave the giant factory uh, and they'd do an eight-hour shift and they'd drive over the dales, they'd come up Sutton Bank. There was a huge circular loop route they did, which took eight hours. And when they came back to the factory, the, the people driving got out and put petrol in one thing or another, and then they set off again for another eight hours with two different drivers. Well, then, they, I mean, they did it in winter time. And in also. winter, it, uh, they had some horrendous weather, but it, it, they managed to do it sev for several months until they dined out all the problems. Uh, they, they even took one on uh, a test run to um, uh, Italy. They went all the way through uh, Italy and um, down to Pisa and back again without any problems. Uh, the, the actual, the actual. Um, CD range was partially designed by a gentleman called uh, 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 Roy Lunn who took over from Gerald Palmer when he left in 1948. Now uh, Roy Lunn was a very clever uh, engineer and designer and um, he did most of the work on the CD range with, with a crew of people as well. But he went on a test run and um, he, he it, it was rumoured that when they were driving down these beautiful country lanes in the south of France and the like, um, uh, one of the one of the Jowett factory workers went with them in case they had mechanical problems, and uh, uh, they'd said, "Oh gosh, this is wonderful countryside, isn't it?" And th this chap had said in the back, "Well, if we tidied up ours, 
our area a bit. Ours would just be as pretty as this is. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they they, uh, they did the CD trip quite successfully, and uh, um, as I say, it would it would have under normal circumstances gone into production, but sadly it didn't actually happen. Uh, but one of the um, the people in uh, Switzerland who had a charity agency, he joined the journey at one stage and um, was very impressed and they were going to put orders in but I say it just didn't happen unfortunately um, so it's, it's a sad story in some ways but it's a wonderful history that Joey had so I'm a proud, proud to be part of it really I mean I, I've been in the I'm a new boy I only joined the club in 1984 so uh, <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean how many Jowits exist are oh, they still out there oh there's, there's a good number I mean Jupiter's uh, they are getting restored more and more. Um, when I first joined the club, my car was, you know, a reasonably tidy car. But I mean, nowadays they're getting really well restored, and uh, some of them look better than they were when they were. I new. mean, I know for a fact that there's two of them this this year raced at Classic Le Mans. A, green, were, a yes. green one and a pale blue one. They, they're still out there racing. Yes, yes. Now. Uh, Richard Gain, who was driving the light blue one, he's been waving the giant flag for quite a few years now. He's been to Le Mans more than once, and he does other uh, prestigious events as well. But it's it's a rich person's game to do um, motor racing now. I mean, the amount of money he spent on engine rebuilds and the like <laughs> is phenomenal. In fact, he'd blown up an engine just before the Le Mans, so he had to use his replacement engine to uh, to actually do that trip. But um, now it's wonderful to see them still in, still in, still in race mode. Now those two cars are the main two Jupiters. Yeah. Um, but we've had, we've had um, javelins as well in recent times. When they first brought out the Pirelli Marathon, I think that was 1988 from memory. Um, we had a team of three Jowitts, two two Jupiters and a javelin. Um, my friend Jeff McCauley in York had the javelin, uh, and it's. It did really well. They all did very well. All three cars finished, but once again, after the first year, it got more uh, heavily financed by um, more famous people. I mean, Sterling Moss, he had a car in the second second one, and the car was prepared for him in advance, as you know, rumored at thirty thousand pounds or something. So it then became uh, very difficult for. The, the likes of ordinary club folks to enter cars. We we did three years on the trot, but then uh, we we stopped after that. But we've done a lot of other racing in other events as well. So uh, we we still we still do our best to be seen by as many people as possible. So yeah, it we we're going from strength to strength. And as I've mentioned to you earlier, Mark, it's our centenary next year so uh, where, where will celebrations take place well the main rally is going to be based in Wakefield um, we've had a lot of problems trying to find a hotel big enough which is our normal problem because you need a, 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 a hotel with a capability of seating 250 people for the dinner dance so it, it does limit a lot of places but we're going to have various events during the year they're doing a rerun of the uh, the 19 23 forming of the 90, of the Southern Jowett Car Club they're doing a rerun of that we're going to be at Goodwood uh, 
uh, there's um, we're going to be at the Bradford Industrial Museum um, later in the year. That, that that's normally in August. Well, it's, it's this this weekend. Funny enough, this year's one, but we're doing a bigger one next mm. year. Um, the Industrial Museum is a wonderful place to go to. They have um, a transport section, and there are about I think there's ten or twelve chariots in there, ranging from the very early ones right the way through to the Jupiter. So it's uh, we always go there for what we call the ex-employees reunion, um, which we we are finding less and less workers there now because of their age. Uh, we've got one wonderful gentleman who's still in the club who's 104 uh, and he's still very active. Um, but it's, it's, it's on our calendar now and it will be in, indefinitely. So we, yeah, there's plenty going on and we'll be keeping busy particularly next year. So if anybody wants to find out about anything to do with Jowett and the Jowett Car Club, You'll have a website, what is it, Jowett? We have a Jowett, there's a Jowett website which is jowett.org. Um, I, I have a Facebook page called My Car Was a Jowett, all <laughs> one word, uh, which is good fun. My son runs that for me because uh, uh, he finds Jowett stuff all over the place which he puts on that site. People think I'm really clued up, but I'm not really, <laughs> it's, it's, my, it's my son. So, uh, uh, yeah, but I'd say if you type Jowett into uh, Google, uh, you'll find it all pops up. That there's there's clubs in Australia, New Zealand, uh, there's an American branch as well. So that there's we're all over the world now. So uh, yeah, you don't have to look far to find us now. Noel Stokel, it's been a pleasure chatting to you for the second episode of this show. But thanks very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. That's my pleasure. My Really beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tyres are the best in the business. And when it comes to tyre expertise and advice to supplying the correct tyres for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tyres team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytyres.co.uk. 